Okay, we'll start it Thanks. now. Thanks, Thank Melissa. you. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening. I am Melissa Cawthorn, Event Manager at Global Digital Finance and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this Global Leaders Town Hall in partnership with the Global Blockchain Business Council with our very special guest today, Sherry Madeira, Chief Industry and Government Affairs Officer, London Exchange Group. Sherry Madeira joined Refinitiv as the Chief Industry and Government Affairs Officer in March 2019 from the City of London where she was the Economic Ambassador to Asia and Special Advisor. After the merger of Refinitiv and London Stock Exchange Group, Sherry now leads a team across the LSEG divisions, including capital markets, post-trade, and data and analytics. Sherry is a unique combination of ex-investment banker and ex-diplomat. Previously, as Minister Counselor at the British Embassy in Beijing, Sherry was responsible for promoting trade and investment between the UK and China. She has focused on financial and professional services and technology as key industries of international growth. She played a leading role in the regular UK-China and UK-India economic and financial dialogues and prime ministerial summits and helped develop policy objectives as well as inward and outward investment opportunities between the UK and Asia. Sherry holds various leadership roles, including a position as a non-executive director council member at the University of Nottingham, advisory board member of Hong Kong Cyberport, chair of international at IBDE, and is the Chair of the Future of Sustainable Data Alliance. Lawrence Wintermeyer, our Executive Co-Chair of GDF and GBBC UK Regional Ambassador is hosting today's Town Hall. We very much welcome your questions. If you have a question, please feel free to submit it at any time using the Q&A box located at the bottom of the screen. I really hope you enjoy today's session and I'd now love to welcome Lawrence and Sherry. Well, thank, thank you very much, Melissa and Sherry Madeira. I've been looking so forward to this uh, investment banker and diplomat. I, I think that says it all. Welcome to the Global Leader Series. Thanks very much, Lawrence. Always good to talk to you. Uh, and um, you're always a very good translator into what's, uh, what, the, what the industry really needs to talk about. So um, hopefully we'll get some interesting questions and make this a good fun session. Well, you, you're too kind, and I think we're at the intersection of everything going digital uh, and in a green or ESG sustainable way, so I think our talk couldn't be more, more timely today. So let's kick off and, and start with the big ones. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions, it's essential to the goals in meeting the Paris Agreement to limit global warming to well below two degrees Celsius. Um, so the financial uh, industry itself has had a significant role to play in facilitating the transition to a low carbon economy. And, and not least because asset returns are expected to be hit hard by the impact of climate change and, and, and the impact that that has on the real economy. Now I know LSEG and Refinitiv have now come together 
What role is the group playing in, in helping companies really set their goals in this area? Yeah, uh, th thanks, Lawrence. Um, the, the the merger that took up so much of uh, so many uh, of my and my colleagues' time completed on February the 1st. Uh, so um, we're really just in the process of properly bringing everything together after much planning, which is making that uh, uh, you know a lot easier than um, than perhaps uh, it could have been. Uh, so that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but it also means that we have so much breadth in order to be able to engage with the topic of sustainability uh, writ large. And, and um, we, we've divided the company into three different uh, segments. One being uh, data and analytics, uh, which doesn't just comprise sort of the old um, refinitive business, which for those of you um, sort of who want to take one step backwards, that was the financial and risk business of Thomson Reuters. So a significant global footprint there. Uh, the capital markets business, where for most people think London Stock Exchange, they think about the capital markets. Uh, and then the post-trade division, uh, not just LCH, but uh, the brands that are around post-trade and clearing. So really, it is a financial markets infrastructure business. Uh, and sustainability plays its role in all of those areas. I'll pick out a couple. Um, you know, in capital markets, um, you know, already there's been lots of green bonds and sustainable bonds and different segmentation in terms of things. Um, there's also sort of the green uh, sustainability watermark for equity listings that um, that actually exhibit green revenues uh, over a certain threshold. So all of those rules are, are on our website. Uh, and essentially sort of really trying to make very, very clear where sort of the uh, green and sustainable uh, investment opportunities are. Um, and very recently, we've also launched a transition bond segment. So that's work, working with the Transition Pathway Initiative to not only look at just green and brown as of today, but something that I feel quite passionately about is, is thinking about where the transition is happening and where you can support that as an investor. Um, and of course, you know, uh, my, my bread and butter for the last few years has been in that data and analytics side of things. And of course, that is a big driver uh, for where sustainability is going. So what data can you use? How is it you can use them for benchmarking? Where are the indexes um, that support this sort of uh, investing philosophy, both active and passive? Uh, thinking about sort of where it is that um, uh, ESG data plays its role. How is the disclosures being sort of normalized and how is that being put together so that it becomes consumer, uh, consumable and decision useful in terms of being able to direct capital at scale to sustainable investments? Well, and, and I always think when it comes to ESG measures, it is definitely all about the data. And I think we're re reasonably proficient uh, at measuring and auditing uh, company financial returns. But measuring the impact of ESG and sustainable initiatives for shareholders and customers re really requires that companies harness a, a whole lot of different data that's currently not necessarily connect, collected. And, and it's part of an, an emerging requirement that's either mandatory or, or voluntary in the reporting regimes we're seeing uh, for companies. And so, you know, how can we improve these data building blocks so that we're building greener systems and we, you know, we can measure the, the, the double, triple dip, the non-financial returns and the, the, the externalities uh, that these data opportunities offer us? Yeah, I love how you use that, that phrase data building blocks because that's how I see it as well. Um, let me throw some data at you while we're talking. So uh, we did a survey uh, and um, of global institutional investors uh, from all regions in the world, uh, and 98% said that they take ESG and sustainability data into consideration when deciding to invest in a company. 
but nearly 83% cite data as the obstacle to effective assessment. So you might think this is this makes no sense, but it makes perfect sense in the sense that we're actually hoping that what we can take from this is that investors are not making the perfect the enemy of the good, and they're getting on with it in order to be able to use data to deploy, but there's still help that they need in order to be able to create you know, truly um, useful information that's coherent, that's comprehensive, and that's consistent. Uh, and on this basis of sort of seeing that the you know data was really at the heart of a lot of the initiatives for sustainability, um, you know we we launched actually a a new alliance last year called the Future of Sustainable Data Alliance, uh, and we did that at Davos. You remember when we actually could get together and everybody comes together in one place? Yeah, that 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 old uh, thing. And actually, you and I were. I, I actually missed that a bit. I, I do miss it too. As much as this is lovely, and actually we get to see people from all around the world. I'm seeing names come up in the in the attendee list, and I know some are from Japan, and uh, you know that's quite compelling that we can all do that together. Um, but at the same time, there's nothing like running into Lawrence Wintermeyer in a little cafe uh, and being able to have a little coffee and a chat about sustainability and data. That's what we did, uh, and that was where we launched the Future of Sustainable Data Alliance Coalition of the Willing. You know, with the World Economic Forum, with the UN, uh, with the uh, Tsinghua University in China, Oxford University in the UK, contributors like the GFMA, the Climate Bonds Initiative, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and what was the point? The point was to try and find out what data is actually available today and what data are we going to need for tomorrow in order to meet the needs of a truly green financial system. And when I say truly green financial system, it's not just about the investor. Um, it's also about the regulator who's starting to really play a key role in this marketplace. And we've seen that even through disclosure regimes, through what's going on in, in uh, for, uh, the sustainable finance disclosures, the taxonomies, you know, various different parts of the world are having taximania, essentially, with uh, so many different areas uh, of, of definition. And what about those building blocks that you referenced? So where are they the same? And how can we make sure that they're actually solid footing those, those foundations to build that house on. Uh, and so uh, FOSDA has actually looked at this and said, how do we improve this? And there are a few things that have come out really clearly from our work over the first year. So we're in the second year now, but the first year really outlined the fact that, you know, there are some needs to define where there are gaps and where are there actually holes. You know, and I, I, I try and distinguish this because a gap means you know what you need to know but maybe the data is not there. So we need to populate those gaps. A data hole is that you want to be able to use data in order to be able to put capital to work. You know, for example, you know, a great example is, is, is working on biodiversity and thinking about how it is you can channel money to being positive for, for a biodiversity um, uh, initiative. What data do you use? Uh, it's, it's actually quite unclear. And we would consider that a data hole until we actually understand what data we need. We can't even determine if the data is there and how we match that up. So we're doing a bit of work on that, thinking about sort of how it is that data can actually be, uh, those gaps can be filled, but also really identifying clearly what we mean by data and, and making sure it's a global definition. Well, and uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by that, even in the coalition of the willing, because I really do think that it's going to take uh, leadership of, of industry policymakers uh, and a lot of FinTech and, and newly emerging digital assets plays uh, to, to, to really grab a hold of it. And a lot of it is voluntary. But now let, let's go on. You and I were speaking about the OECD report last year calling for a greater coordination on uh, global data regulation, basically to measure 
the non-financial side, the ESG performance, and, and help eliminate greenwashing. And I'll just run through a few stats that I thought were, were interesting here, because the report cites that over 30 trillion of investment in recent years in sustainable and an ESG invest, investment, more than 25% of that is in publicly listed companies um, that are ESG measured and rated. And these, particular, these companies typically t- tend to be in the US and large public companies. But the report analysis uh, points to the vast distribution and performance of ESG ratings by the different providers. So, you know, I kind of like it because it said, well, look, let, let, let's look at a single U.S. big company's credit ratings. And there was a tight cluster. Now, let's look at that same company with three ESG ratings. And the distribution of performance was, you know, re- really all over the place, you know, which leads to concerns not just from regulators, but, you know, from investors. Um, and. I really wanted to get your views on, on how you think we can better coordinate global standards, not just through your own initiative, but with policymakers and, 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 and regulators. Yeah, I mean, it is a hot topic right now, uh, certainly. And, and as well, when we start talking about coordinating uh, standards, I think we've all had this experience in whichever uh, area we've, we've lived in in our, in our past career life which is, you know, there's, there's this standard, there's standard A, there's standard B, there's standard C. Uh, and then at some point someone goes, we don't need an alphabet soup of standards. We need one standard to rule them all. Um, and at the risk of sounding a bit Lord of the Rings-like, someone comes up and says, we want to actually create one. Well, how is it that you just don't create yet another standard, right? Like this is how standard D was born because someone decided that actually there should be a different one. And actually, I think a little bit of that is starting to uh, happen right now. Um, so already, you know, for, for many years, there's been SASB, there's been GRI, there's been the CDP, the Carbon Disclosure Project, all looking at pulling in ESG data sets and, you know, creating sort of a, a database and, and a set of, of um, how to disclose uh, for listed issuers primarily, but also, you know, private companies are, are choosing to do so as well. Um, and now what we're looking at is a call to arms by the IFRS uh, to look at creating a, a global standard. Uh, and, you know, I do think that this is uh, going to help everyone. Um, it is going to take a significant amount of work. IFRS are just pulling together their advisory board now. So, uh, you know, again, it's, it's starting to build up. But the thinking here is, is, you know, we've got a number of different accounting standards around the world, but they actually, most of them have a dotted line in terms of being able to be uh, coherent, together, and comparable. Uh, and I think that that is the, the effort that's being made now, is to create that for ESG, sustainability, and climate-related disclosures, so that they become just as easy to manipulate and uh, use and cogitate and put into methodologies and analyze uh, as, as regular sort of bog-standard financial uh, balance sheet data and, and um, P&L data. So um, I, I think that there's definitely a push towards that. Um, but it, there, there is a road to go down. And of course, you know, what's working in tandem is this, this point I made previously, which is taxonomies. Um, and if we really pick that apart, what is a taxonomy? It's just trying to define things so that, so that the investor will see, well, this is the definition. And if it meets that criteria, then that investment will be considered green in that jurisdiction's uh, mind. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a great tool to fight greenwashing. Uh, because you get that standard definition to put together. But with multiple taxonomies, again, you know, you're going to get a little bit of proliferation before you get some harmonies that come together. And, you know, one thing for, for this audience to think about, and perhaps for us all to think about is actually, 
many different definitions, as long as they're fungible together and comparable and you understand and, you know, using sort of technical terms, have an API as to how you can plug them in and compare them. Actually, as long as you've got the data sets very clearly defined, you can plug and play. You know, we're in a technical world and actually that shouldn't be an impediment to moving forward. Of course, harmonization around the world would be great, but we all know how regulators, standard setters and policymakers uh, seem to uh, take a very long time, if ever, to be able to be truly harmonized. Well, I, I love that view and I couldn't agree more. I mean, we've got to, you know, my community friends, Richard Pierce, former Microsoft, uh, speaking about that type of API marketplace. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more in that. I think that, you know, in, in GDF, having spent our own time with taxonomies and standards, which is quite, quite a bit of the work we do, the idea that we would have a single global standard, uh, particularly for ESG or, or how to measure the sustainable development goals doesn't seem practical. But if there is a rigidity in, in the taxonomy and an ability to really rate the, the ultimate you know, relative strength of that, and, and just as we do with languages translate, I, I, I think that that's a much more practical and, and, and you know, a, a route that we could hope, hopefully expedite. And I, I just wanted to extend that a bit further because again, you know, I, I'm, I'm encouraged. A lot of people would think, oh my gosh, IFRS. Well, I think, look, you know, ultimately uh, your financial returns need to be audited. It would make sense to me that the path of least resistance is to have your non-financial returns audited. And, and so there, there, are, there are something in the maturity of those processes that we can, you know, probably reuse and make better. But when it comes to regulation and mandatory reporting frameworks, and you know we, we, we've seen, seen them on carbon, which, which is, I think most people appreciate an existential priority. Do, do you think that, that more mandatory uh, reporting frameworks or, or greater jurisdictional or global regulation could help to accelerate some of the priorities around carbon, biodiversity, social diversity, you know, that, that kind of triumvirate that you and I are always speaking about. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this, but yeah, I do. I think for this topic, I do think that regulation and government intervention um, is going to help uh, because of the timeline. Lawrence, we don't have time. Yeah. We don't have the time for a global market to work. You know, I'm a big proponent of the uh, invisible hand of the market uh, and that that will work its way through. And we're already seeing that bottom up investor demand. It's there. Uh, even shareholder action is starting to become a bite uh, in terms of, you know, how investors will and how portfolios are managed and the risk that's involved in perhaps uh, areas that that might be, uh, you know, pinpointed by investor action or indeed investors uh, decided that they're not going to put their money there for ESG or climate reasons. But that takes time to work its way through. Uh, and regulation has, uh, you know, a much more uh, direct uh, influence on um, financial institutions in the financial market. So I do think that that uh, will help from a top down and a bottom up uh, perspective. But I do think we do need to recognize the fact that, um, you know, it, you mentioned a number of things in, in that statement about sort of ESG, climate, um, and sort of uh, social, and, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's kind of all about impact. And so, you know, where is it that this wave of regulation and investor will start meeting together uh, when you start thinking about things like social impact, social uh, about governance, 
uh, about sort of the, um, you know, the, the way that's happening in terms of transition versus, you know, very uh, hard and fast green versus brown uh, terminology. So I think that, uh, you know, there should be regulation and more mandatory regulation in order to accelerate us uh, to where we need to be in order to be able to stem the, uh, the, the, the negative impacts on our environment. However, it has its complexities as well. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I'm going to be boring and I'm going to say a lot of those roads lead back to data, right? So if you have this amazing regulation that says, actually, this is the way it's got, you know, capital has got to be channeled and it's going to move en masse and there is going to be a significant shift in where what's being funded and how. You need to be able to base that on data and certain regions of the world just don't have the density. Uh, and even the most mature uh, capital markets just don't have the, uh, the data either uh, at their disposal from disclosures or indeed the forward-looking data to try and sort of see where is this going. Because as we've seen from the pandemic, and yes, I finally mentioned COVID, uh, I think we got this far, at, that's not too bad at 24 minutes. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it means you can't extrapolate the data the same way you did previously. Uh, there really is you know, a, a question mark as to how it is that you can um, get real-time or near real-time data into your analytics. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated um, uh, space. Regulators definitely play their role. Well, now, now I love this. And so I, I just think, you know, uh, had you and I known each other and met for a coffee 25 years ago, we'd be a bit surprised uh, that we're, we're both saying, actually, meaningful regulation, uh, regulatory certainty, or meaningful compliance which are terms that the GDF community use, would really help accelerate here. So let's flip this on its head. Let's not look, look at it as a barrier. Let's look at it as something that's important to really, in this case, get the G20 focused uh, on, which is broadly where 80% of the capital markets are anyway in, in, in that concentration. Not that I've got a G20 bias, but that there is an importance here. And again, you know, this point you raise, I know you and I are always, I think for the benefit of our viewers, uh, you know, we're all big fans of uh, the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals, you know, the, the, the massive funding, uh, you, you know, gap to get us to 2030. We've got 17 goals with, a, a, I think, 160 underlying targets in there. But the, re the reality is, I think, for many of us who are focused on um, this space, there are, you know, the E gets the attention again because of, of, of climate, which is carbon. Biodiversity, I think, has caught most of us um, as, an, as important as the carbon discussion. And then many of us think certainly, um, you know, not just gender diversity, but race diversity and social diversity uh, in, in, in our companies, whether it's early stage companies or big publicly listed companies helps us better achieve those big existential targets in, in, in a risk-adjusted way. So uh, I love that we, 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 we're starting to call for more proactive uh, regulation on this front as an accelerator, not as a, a barrier to slow us down, but to, to, to help us hit these targets. So, uh, you know, you, you heard it here on the Global Leaders Series. Let, let's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's focus now on, on, on investors. So investors are looking to allocate to green assets. So your data at the beginning was great. I want to allocate, but I don't know how to or where to. 
which is the, the problem I think we find ourselves in. Or, or I, I don't know where to or how to because I don't want to end up going to jail or, or you know, having my shareholders or, or retail customers say, well, you didn't achieve any of those green targets that you, you, you said you were going to achieve when you sold me the investment. So, so now increasingly we're trying to, to move from green, uh, from stranded assets to green. Uh, a lot of the stranded assets are in public markets and a lot of the new green assets are, are in private markets and early stage stuff, uh, you know, clean tech, energy tech, agri-tech, uh, exciting stuff happening all over the world. And so at the same time, we're seeing private markets, securities, digitization moving at pace as a means of, of really opening up those markets so that investors can access them uh, rather than having to go to Sequoia and, you know, become an LP. So do, do you do you see this trend? And do you think that there's a, a role really with things like smart contracts and the blockchain to, to better capture some of this data or some of these externalities when it comes to ESG? And, and you know, this is an area that occurs to us in GDF that in private markets, we could probably put voluntary, um, you know, voluntary reporting regimes in for things like digital securities. Is, is that anywhere on your radar? And, and is, is that stuff that LSEG is looking at? Well, I think that we're, we're looking at it from uh, multiple perspectives. I mean, from, from an LSEG perspective, we, we do have a very robust labs uh, uh, group, which, which looks at data, looks at sort of how it is that uh, blockchain and DLT can be can be utilized uh, in terms of sort of onboarding or changing data or being able to sort of move data, uh, you know, through various different apps uh, with partners, etc. You know, so I think that there's there's great opportunity there. Um, I mean, your point between private sector and public sector um, is, is a good one, which is trying to and and we've just seen sort of in the UK the Hill Review, which was reviewing the, um, uh, you know, the, the competitiveness essentially of UK uh, uh, capital markets to attracting um, technology companies, attracting all kinds of companies uh, to be able to, uh, to, to raise capital through the London market. So obviously that's, that's squarely with LSEG uh, in mind. Uh, and, and I do think that these other technologies who are going to help get data ratified and, um, and um, confirmed in a more efficient way uh, is, is going to help. Um, so thinking about how that, that uh, can be pulled through is essential. I do think when you start thinking about ESG in this world, uh, we do have to you know, not be you know, putting the, the reality in the corner. You know, being able to calculate accurately your footprint as a company and your supply chain and taking all the scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, even if we're just talking about carbon, it's an expensive thing. Uh, because also there's a demand for it to be externally ratified. So there's an expense to all of this. Um, and the smaller you go in terms of company size and corporate size, you know, that, that's a burden on, on, on the company. So, you know, any ways we can create some more efficient disclosure and transparency is going to be incredibly helpful, especially when you consider we all know those, those uh, you know, truisms, which is, you know, there are more SMEs that drive any economy and the big, big corporates in terms of sort of uh, economic output. And, and especially as we're coming out of a, a deep recession caused by the pandemic, you know, really making sure we're promoting and supporting those SMEs to, uh, to prosper is going to be essential, but it has to be prospering in a green way. Otherwise, they're going to find that actually their trajectory and their ability to raise funds will get curtailed quite rapidly when it meets the public markets or when it meets sort of more sophisticated investors along the chain. You know, it, it, your question also draws me back to um, some work that the UN has been doing. 
about digital finance meets the SDGs. Uh, and you know, there's a there's some really interesting papers and work that came out in the summer last year, uh, looking at how is it that you can put the power into the hands of the consumer, into the hands of the investor, into the hands of you and me. Uh, and actually, that's where technology can get incredibly compelling because you can make some decisions about micro investing, private company investing, you know, even just buying what you're intending to buy on the basis of the carbon footprint issues of ESG, if you feel passionately about uh, the social elements or looking at impact or supporting sort of good governance, you know, being able to give that power to the end user and disintermediating along the way can be an incredibly powerful thing for financial markets and actually sort of, you know, making sure that companies smaller and smaller see the benefit right away of making that disclosure transparent. Yeah, I know I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that's a very uh, exciting area. It's certainly an exciting area in private markets, given the size of uh, you know global private markets. They, they, every, every measure I look at, that they look bigger than uh, public markets. You know, the big the big thing uh, I'm always reminded of with my geek background is how you actually risk adjust it. And I think you know one one thing is saying. Uh, look, we've got, uh, you know, uh, technology now that can direct investors to the type of ESG investments that they want in the world that are related to, to their interests and, in, 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 you know, helping the ESG or the SDG causes. There's another area in early stage private markets on how you risk adjusted or how you get through with consumers. And then, you know, in, in, in many markets, uh, those sort of investments are, aren't particularly eligible for retail in investors anyway. So there's, there's certainly a, a, a long way to go. But uh, I think we need to uh, get another session and, and focus on this because it just uh, it appears to me, uh, having spent so much time in the early, you know, fintech, clean tech, agritech space, a lot of these new exciting things are happening in, in, in the private markets. And again, that, that, that's difficult even for institutional investors or even pension funds to, to, to access for, for all sorts of reasons, as you know. So, so let, let's move on. I mentioned earlier biodiversity, and I'm keen to get your views on this because, you know, again, I've had this focus on, hey, look, all of these, um, you know, ESG measures or sustainable development goals are right, but boy, if we don't get, you know, carbon right, the planet will be underwater in, in, in 50 years and it won't matter, uh, particularly if we're haggling about, you know, 50 or 60 basis points of returns on, on, on investments. And, and so the E is pretty big in ESG. It's certainly big, bigger than the S and G. And, and, and now uh, E is even bigger because I think biodiversity uh, has really captured people. And we, we see uh, another set of, you know, certainly existential crisis emerging. So can you give our, our viewers an idea of what sort of assets are involved in, in biodiversity? What, what does it kind of mean? And wh where should we be looking for them? Yeah, I mean, biodiversity seems to be a bit of a buzzword growing now. And, you know, just taking a step back, Trying to, you know, I, I think that a lot of investors out there might just go, oh God, we're just another one. Arms around ESG, right? Like we are just getting yeah. on on disclosures for this other thing, and now you're talking about biodiversity. I, yeah. I just can't, right? Um, but actually, it, it can't wait, really, in my opinion, um, and and in a lot of people's opinion, including Amundi and BMP Paribas and a number of uh, AXA investment managers who last year asked for an RFP on how is it that you can channel information about, um, about impacts on nature 
into a, a, a investment portfolio planning process. Uh, so, or, you know, this is coming from the investor community trying to understand this. And let me give you, a, you know, a great example, super simple. It, it brought it home to me, which is um, you're investing in a, um, uh, a company that is putting a, a solar farm. Uh, and it's in a, you know, in, in a fantastic growing area and, you know, it all looks good. Now, this is a green investment, right? This is using, you know, green tech. It's going to be solar energy. This is going to, you know, sort of be able to push coal to the side. This is great. Yeah, well, what if they build it in a, in a redwood forest? What if they build it where they have to raise a, a forest to the ground? So what is the net net? Is that a green and sustainable investment? Or actually, is it doing incredible harm, not only to the, for example, forestry, uh, which you know, is, is an element that's, that's easily tracked, but what about the impacts on the nature that lives there, the, um, the animal population, the bird population, and so therefore the ecosystem and wildlife and actually, you know, if you if you think, well, animals, birds, planet, actually, it's also all of the people who live in that area in terms of who have been living in a way that um, interacts with that that landmass that may then all of a sudden have impacts on global warming, on uh, you know some of that um, uh, having impacts on water quality in the area, etc. So something that you were super sure that you were going to put your dollar, pound, yen, whatever it happens to be, on that investment all of a sudden should be giving you pause. But how is it that as an investor in the system of so many different uh, phases of investment, be that in a fund, in, a, in an asset manager, in a pension fund, in, you know, in some bank loans, how is it that you're gonna distinguish where that plus and minus lies? It's a big issue. Uh, and so how is it, you know, your, your question was what assets does this affect? You know, I think a lot of the time, uh, to keep it simple, we're starting to think about sort of where are physical assets. So where are physical assets geographically located and what is their impact on their physical environment around them? Uh, you know, again, I, I put a star in the margin here saying this is kind of a simple way of looking at it and we should continue to get more sophisticated because it's not just always so localized. Um, but when you start thinking about that, what could you do in order to be able to map some of that out? And here's a great call for putting two things together to make something work. If you have asset level data and you pair that with geospatial data in terms of the data that's going to be predicted both in terms of climate, environment, uh, um, wind patterns, trade, all kinds, and, and you're mapping it together, then you all of a sudden can make some decisions on that because you know where the asset is and you know where the geospatial uh, impacts are. Keeping those two pieces of information separate you ain't got enough. It's not decision useful yet. So when we're talking about diet biodiversity, I think that we do have to start thinking laterally about what is it that we need to be able to track? What data do we need to actually do that effectively? Uh, and how is it that we're going to create a, a, a baseline that says, you know, below this, it's not good enough? I, I, uh, I, I just love that, um, you know, description of things, you know, a few years ago, I was always using the term uh, surveillance capitalism and saying, you know, we need to really turn that on its head, um, you know, to surveillance environmentalism. And, and this is really where technology pulls through. And, uh, you know, I love your narrative on geodata because uh, you know, having looked at even some of the geo data right now around, uh, you know, the, the, the number of uh, lands that are getting, you know, burned, uh, you know, trees getting burned for agricultural uh, use. And, and you look at the, you know, the sort of geo data on the earth scorching and, and it is, you know, my gosh, it's, it's, it's upsetting. 
And then quite often you find out, uh, you know, it's for a cash crop like palm oil, which is used in everything from food to shampoo. And, you know, ultimately it's, you know, retail products and food that people don't even pay attention to part of our everyday life uh, that, that quite often drive a lot of those uh, behaviors. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the, you know, the better integration of that, that, that surveillance data and understanding, uh, again, from certainly a holistic or a global perspective, what is going on is a very important part of biodiversity. And, and I, you know, again, I, I know, you know, it's like with carbon, it's, it's, it's still in the E. There, there's a lot of S and G stuff to get to, but there, there, there does seem to be a sort of existential priority in these, uh, you know, rather than a, a number of other goals, which, which are fantastic that we need to be chipping away at, but don't seem to have the, the, the urgency that certainly, you know, climate and, and, and biodiversity have. And, and before everyone starts thinking, oh gosh, despondent, despondent, you know, isn't this an awful, there are, you know, there are movements that are afoot already. So um, there's something called the TNFD, the Task Force for Nature-Based Nature Financial Disclosure. Uh, and that's looking at being launched imminently in the next few weeks. Uh, and I think this is very encouraging because we've seen how much progress the TCFD has had, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, uh, which is the basis by which a lot of these mandatory disclosures are coming into play. So at a TNFD being able to focus on sort of what is it that we need to know and how is it that we can put it to a framework on nature and biodiversity, I think is very encouraging. Uh, and again, that, that's coming up fast. Of course, everyone knows COP26 uh, coming up in November, but the TNFD also is related to COP15, which is about biodiversity and about nature. So um, there, you know, there are some great thinkers that are putting their minds to it. So it's not all for lost. Well, and, and, and you remind me as a taxonomy geek, we, we need to put together the catalog of taxonomies and just a central resource of all of these resources in order to be able to point people to them. Because I think one of the biggest issues now, even in the professional community, is that there's so many things and so, so many great initiatives going on uh, that, that just aren't, aren't accessible because they're not necessarily indexed or, or referenceable by people. So. I'll take that away as a, a, a GDF initiative to dial you up uh, with that LSEC and maybe we can get the community together, you know, to, to put together a wiki on this. Now, I, I want to spend uh, our, our last few minutes on um, something I mentioned before again, um, which, uh, you know, is, is more the S. And so we, we've all been focused on gender equality uh, many of us have been focused on it, you know, for many years and have, have, have grown up with it. So, um, you know, uh, we're certainly not trying to move gender equality aside, but I think we're trying to extend the measure to include race, equality, uh, social diversity, and include that in, in, you know, a set of measures that when you start looking at, again, data coming through in financial returns, companies that have uh, a better uh, social diversity or balance in their boards and executive seem to perform better on, on a financial basis and often be better risk adjusted. I, I think like empirically to me, that just sounds sensible because it's, you know, it sounds as if your organization probably reflects your customers, your markets, you know, your, your, your territories, et cetera. But you know, give us your thoughts on this because this is a pretty immense topic, and and I want to know where you think the ESG data trends are, are are now and where they're moving on this topic. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the S really needs deeper scoping and, and uh, it may be one of the places where we can turn to the UN SDGs to determine sort of where it is that you can actually pull from some of that to, to, um, to get some better definitions going. Uh, but, you know, when you're thinking about diversity, you know, often it's the visible diversities um, that are tracked in terms of data. Um, so you mentioned gender, but also race, uh, you know, if it's self-disclosed, things like religion, uh, things like, uh, you know, abilities, etc. Um, but, you know, when I hear, you know, and I'm speaking from my own personal view is, you know, we LSEG works in over 190 countries around the world. Uh, my own personal experience of being economic ambassador to Asia for the city of London means that there is not even any such thing as Asia. Uh, each of those cultures are different. Uh, yep. And so therefore understanding, uh, uh, you know, getting understanding through a diverse group that you surround yourself with in your team, in your extended team, in your board, uh, it, it just makes sense uh, because it allows you to really get a view. And, and of course, I actually use the term diversity within, you know, within my team and I, I run a global team. Uh, it's also about the, the personality types and the way that people process and the way that people interact. Introvert versus the extrovert. You know, those that um, are more interested in sort of, uh, you know, reading and becoming experts versus those that are interested in, in more being sort of a generalist. You know, all of these people traits actually add to sort of the impact. How do, you, how do you track that in terms of data? Um, you know, it becomes difficult, but it's worth sort of putting your mind to what actually really matters. Um, and your point about boards and diversity and whatnot, you know, I, I have a relatively, I think, controversial view, which is, you know, I, I think that when you're giving people opportunities to grow in businesses, you have to look at it as that. Give people the opportunity to shine, but you also need to work on the merit, on meritocracy uh, and making sure that people are, are, are well equipped uh, to be able to shine in those roles. Uh, and I think that when it comes to sort of uh, certain parts of the world um, that are perhaps a little bit behind the curve in terms of even just gender uh, diversity, um, that there does need to be some thinking about how it is you change the root cause, which I think we're, we're doing really well as societies uh, to do, you know, which is to go back, you know, and make sure that some of the, you know, key things are, are bolted down. Even Biden's family plan that just came out a week ago uh, in terms of thinking about sort of where he's putting money to work. You know, it is about sort of childcare. It is about maternity cover. It is about sort of making sure that uh, perhaps families as a whole are able to sort of work to the best of their ability. And those are the sort of thinking I think we should probably figure out how we can track and how it is that we can put some metrics towards so that so we see how they're working, not just in developing countries, but actually in a mature business, in mature economies as well. Well, what a, I couldn't agree with you more. What, what, what a great way to, to, to wrap up. And I, 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 do, I do agree with your point in meritocracy in that uh, you know, we've got on one hand the challenge of making sure that wherever we are in the world, our, our organizations are, are socially diverse or, you know, re reflective of the diversity of our, our societies, but at the same time that we're uh, rewarding people uh, in, in a meritocracy and they're getting the job because they deserve it, uh, not because we're trying to hit specific quotas on on. Uh, you know, social diversity. And, and that's exactly where the, the, the challenge lies. But Sherry Madera, uh, I have to say this has just been a fantastic uh, 45 minutes. I've really enjoyed this. We're, we're going to have to have you back uh, at some point in time. 
and and just drill down further on these topics because this is uh, you know this is yet another emerging space. I think you know we've been speaking about ESG or many of us certainly in the investment management space for years, but it's actually all just starting to happen now. And a lot of that has to do uh, not just with technology, uh, but but with COVID. COVID has really uh, accelerated and I think brought a greater awareness uh, to, to ESG that I'm not sure anyone would have uh, really expected a couple of years back. Mm. No, I agree with that. The digitization and, and of course, through my lens of financial services, you know, it's just made things able to happen that just simply were a no before. And again, that's a no from regulators. It's a no from the C-suite. Uh, it's a no from the individual who, you know, worked in a certain way. So I think that there's an opportunity there to be able to double down on, on great tech uh, to accelerate things for good. Um, and what I've been incredibly encouraged about, uh, you know, Lawrence, is that we've been talking, you're right, we've been talking about climate and ESG, et cetera, for many, many years. Um, and it hasn't been pushed aside during the pandemic. It hasn't been put on the back burner. You know, it has been put on the front burner when people are, when governments are talking about building back better, uh, when, uh, you know, the, the, the focus is on, on making sure that money is going towards uh, new economies that are going to be clean, green, uh, and, and equal. Uh, and, and I just think that that's a great um, testament to this being so important for us to be able to get right right now. Well, I, I love it. Build back better and, and probably a, a, a great social uh, awareness moment in history. Long may it last. So Sherry Madera, thank you very much for joining us on the Global Leaders Town Hall. And thank you to our audience for tuning in today. Uh, of course, you can download and, and, and listen to this again at your leisure. The next Global Leaders will take place uh, with Catherine Jones, CEO at Creative HQ on the 18th of May. And thank you again for joining us. Goodbye. Thank you.